If you have your Bible with you, open to Revelation, the book of Revelation. By the way, just for the record, it's the book of Revelation, not Revelations. Um, the book of Revelation. Um, and uh, <clears throat> uh, chapter 6, we'll be looking at chapter 6 and 7. Uh, we are in a series in the book, uh, in the book and uh, the title of our series is The Revelation of Jesus Christ, Worship and Witness in a Winner-Takes-All World. And uh, the subtitle for this message is Exodus, the Sequel, Part 2, which seems a little bit redundant, but not exactly, because it's the sequel. But last week we did Part 1 of the sequel, so we're still in that. Really, we could probably keep that for the rest of the book, but we won't, to be sure. But um, <clears throat> we'll be looking at chapters 6 and 7. And um, what, what's important as we read is to try to envision what is being described. This is a visual book, and so in order to capture it, we have to try to envision it. Now, we don't, those, what we envision doesn't always mean the same to us as it did to them, and hence uh, the need for a sermon so that we understand what's taking place, but we'll, um, I'll try to do my best to make that plain. But let's begin in Revelation 6, and beginning in verse 1, we'll read uh, the sixth chapter to begin with uh, today. John writes, I watched as the Lamb opened the first of seven seals. Then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, Come. I looked, and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow, and he was given a crown, and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. When the Lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. Then another horse came out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make people kill each other. To him was given a large sword. When the lamb opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. And then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, Two pounds of wheat for a day's wages and six pounds of barley for a day's wages. And do not damage the oil and the wine. Just for updating that in simple terms, food became very expensive. Okay, that's, that's what that's saying right there. But uh, luxurious items like oil and wine were available for the rich. When the lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death, and Hades was following close behind him, the place of the dead. There, they were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, and plague, and by the wild beasts of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain, because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, Sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Then each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were killed just as they had been. I watched as he opened the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair, the whole moon turned blood red, and the stars in the sky fell to earth, as figs drop from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. 
The heavens receded like a scroll being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and everyone else, both slave and free, hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains of the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can withstand it? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, these are sobering words. It's a sobering text. A lot of destruction, a lot of death, a lot of mayhem in the world. Speak to us what you intended by this text when it was first written, we pray. Help me to communicate rightly, fairly, effectively some of these very important truths. In Jesus' name, amen. An inscription near Ephesus, remember Ephesus is one of the seven churches, the first one listed in chapter 2 there, dated to the early first century, so before, it was written before the, the time of writing of Revelation. It describes Augustus as the author of peace, claiming that Augustus brought war to an end and has ordained peace for the world. Every emperor after him, including the one that was present and, and, and ruling when John wrote, claimed to have carried this peace forward. Wars are over. Everything is peace. Ilius Aristides, about 50 years following the writing of Revelation, wrote concerning the previous 150 years, quote, people no longer believe in wars. Indeed, doubt that they ever happened. Stories about them are usually regarded as myths. But if wars should flare up somewhere on the frontiers, these wars quickly disappear again, just like myths, as do the stories about them. Tacitus, a Roman historian, writing about the same time as John, was more honest in his assessment. <laughs> Referring to the actions of the empire, he wrote, They make desolation. And they call it peace. <laughs> Fast forward to the 20th century. Northrop Fry wrote this. There you go. Yeah, I figured you'd like him, right? right. Literary critic, one of the most famous of the last century. Um, he wrote this. He said, Man creates what he calls history as a screen to conceal the workings of the apocalypse from himself. Man creates what he calls history as a screen to conceal the workings of the apocalypse from himself. Or maybe you've heard the more common version of that, which is essentially winners write history. We write it to cover things up. The horrors of history. Because we're the winners, we want to look good in the end. That's a simpler way to put it, but he really got to the point. Gil Bailey, a Christian philosopher, a Catholic man, in his book, Violence Unveiled, he quotes Fry, and then he explains. He says, History pays a price in return for its explanatory power. History, he uses quotation marks around it, conceals something in order to illuminate everything else. What does it conceal? He answers, violence. He notes that the word apocalypse means unveiling. So what does it unveil? What does the apocalypse unveil? His answer again, violence. 
That's what it unveils. And that's what we see in our text today. Good citizens don't tell the story of their history with all the violence because it isn't possible to make meaning out of achieving peace through violence. How does history hide violence? I'll just give you a simple sample. I could have gone on for dozens of samples that just you're familiar with, but I'll give you one. Our history books um, speak, I'm speaking of American history books, speak of the Atlantic slave trade. First, it's packaged as a nice, in, in nice economic language. Even the word trade implies some kind of fairness. But they were not trading with slaves. They were trading slaves. They weren't trading with the slaves. They were trading the slaves. What else would you do with them since they are slaves? I mean, they, if, if somebody's a slave, I mean, you, you must trade them. Because, of course, they're owned by somebody. Imagine a history book calling it what it is, our national era of human trafficking. That wouldn't be so popular. Somebody would say that's revisionist history. Why? Because they're trying to protect the empire, the beast. Well, that's what we do. We write history to protect. That phrase, the Atlantic slave trade, hides the violence in the very process of talking about it. Rome did this too. Every empire does it. It's what they do. Christians refused to pretend that all was peace. They welcomed the poorest of the poor into their community, the very ones crushed by the system. By their way of life, they declared allegiance to another king. Revelation, or the word from which that is translated, apocalypse, our English version of that word anyway, it means to remove the cover, to unveil. What does it unveil? Violence, yes, and actually it unveils something else, hope. Violence is the description of the powers of this age and what they, that, how it reveals them. But hope in the powers of the coming age is also revealed, the new creation coming down out of heaven to earth. And then there's the Lamb. We ended last week talking about the Lamb because in chapter 5, John was weeping because no one was worthy to open the scroll. Whatever a sealed scroll contains, it has to remain sealed until it's put into the hands of the intended recipient. The re intended recipient is the only one that can rightly open that scroll. The lamb who was murdered, brutally slain, and yet lives, is worthy. He's the intended recipient. And thank God he is worthy because he is God's answer to the violence that it contains. He is the one who confronts the powers of evil, absorbing the violence within himself, the worst that the empire could deliver. And he triumphs over them through the resurrection, which also, by the way, conquers the violence within us and in our lives both. And he announces true peace. So we're going to explore our text under three headings, unsealing the scroll, sealing the servants, and singing by the sea. Unsealing the scroll, sealing the servants, and singing by the sea. And let's begin under that first heading, unsealing the scroll. I've always read what happens after each seal is opened as some part of the contents of the scroll. I don't know if you've done that. Like, you open the first one, so here's some part of the contents of this scroll. But I got to thinking about this. What I was doing, I was just trying to visualize what's taking place in the text. And so I envisioned a scroll, and we've got one here. It's 
you know, pretty cheap rendition of a scroll, but it's from a Messianic synagogue, so at least it's some, you know, attempt. And, and, and these are the wax seals that would have been on it. They would have had stamped on them, maybe the sender in a, a, a real situation. But if you break them, of course, it's been opened, and then that you, that's how the recipient knows that somebody's t- tampered with their mail, so to speak. And, and so you can't read what's inside the scroll until all seven are removed. So what happens after each seal can't be the contents of the scroll. It just, it just struck me because I'm, you know, I've read that and read that and everybody tells me that's what it did. But then I thought, well, that's not possible. So I, I'm just offering to you. I don't think that's what that is because it wouldn't make any sense because that's essentially be a much bigger scroll, I think. But regardless, that's essentially what, what that would have looked like. Maybe the contents reveal God's mysterious purposes in the world. How it is that God will conquer the evil empire, Babylon, by a slain lamb. How will God work all things together for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose? Maybe the reason in chapter 8 why there's silence in heaven for the space of half an hour when they open the seventh seal is to give somebody time to read what's in it. I mean, some of you thought it was because men got to heaven a half hour before women. Sorry, bad. (laughs) Just joking. (laughs) Some of you are just beginning to get bad. We'll leave it alone. But I think it's more likely that somebody's reading the contents of the scroll. And, And to be clear, in the scene that we just read, Jesus isn't causing war, famine, plague, and death by his sovereign will. He cannot be blamed for causing the evil. However, he is the one worthy to open the seals because only he can redeem all that is wrong in the world and bring true peace because he became a slain lamb. We have the famed four horsemen of the apocalypse here in the first four seals. And it's rather clear because you have the four living creatures opening each of the four things that this grouping of seven seals is a four and three because... Because this four is clearly a distinct group within the seven. We, the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse, by the way, is the title of a famous painting from 1887 by Victor Vaznik, whatever his last name is, I can't say it all, but there it is. It's a pretty cool painting. Um, the phrase has also become so popular that it's also the name of the four players in the backfield of Notre Dame's football team in 1924 who apparently wreaked havoc on their opponent's defenses. And it's also the name of a fine dining restaurant in Brooklyn, New York. I'm not sure why anyone would want to name their restaurant that, but like it wreaks havoc on people's stomachs. I'm not really sure, but it is. This image of four horses, each a different color, carrying their riders into the world, bringing death and destruction, captures the imagination at a deep level. Take away the restaurants, the football players, the artwork. What does this imagery mean? Well, the image comes from uh, Zechariah chapter 1, and it's also mentioned again in chapter 6 of Zechariah where the horses are now pulling chariots, but that's secondary to the point. In Zechariah 1, you see these horses, they go into all the the world. Um, And of course, he inquires as to what they are. They had been sent by the Lord into all the earth, and they came back reporting that the whole world was at rest and peace. 
And of course, we would read that and think, that's wonderful. Well, maybe not so much. Because in order for the whole world to be at rest in peace, that would mean that the people of God were still in captivity in Babylon. Okay, somebody has to set them free. And so the heavenly messenger asks the Lord, Lord Almighty, how long will you withhold mercy from Jerusalem and from the towns of Judah, which you have been angry with these 70 years? So they've been in captivity 70 years. And these writers come back and report all is peace and the messenger's concerned. But wait a minute, if everything's at peace, then we're going to stay in captivity longer. But you promised we'd be delivered. And actually at about 70 years, won't go into all the details on that promise in Jeremiah, but you promised that. And so if everything's at peace, somebody's got to upset the world to get our people freed, is the idea. Peace for the nations who held God's people captive meant continued judgment on Jerusalem, on God's people, the Jews, who had been captive in Babylon those 70 years. Mercy for God's people meant judgment for Babylon. Mercy for God's people meant judgment for Babylon. Judgment would mean that God was releasing His people from captivity. Nothing short of a second exodus. Maybe, I don't know for sure, but maybe this explains something of what Jesus meant when He said He did not come to bring peace but a sword. We certainly know He came to set captives free. And if you're going to set captives free, you're going to have to upset the establishment. It's got to happen. The four horses in Zechariah are connected to God's rescue and restoration of His people. It's important to know that the the Jews at the time of Jesus and following in the times of the apostles, that they were still holding on to the promise that God would release them from captivity and restore them. Now, we go back in history and we think, well, they were released from captivity and restored, and there's a sense in which they were, but they also recognized that the Spirit of God never came on the temple. They recognized that God had never shown up to walk among them, that what He really promised had never been fulfilled, so they were still waiting for it. And the New Testament is about how it was actually fulfilled. And the book of Revelation is about how it is actually fulfilled, that God has rescued His people in a second exodus, and He's brought them back together. And we're going to actually see it in our text today, because that's fundamentally what our text is about today. In Revelation, it becomes even clearer that the peace that keeps people enslaved is no peace at all. Who, who are these horses and their riders? Well, let's look at them. The white horse, verse 2, its rider held a bow and was given a crown, and he rode out to conquer and, as a conqueror bent on conquest. This is the military conquerors of the world, the Julius Caesars, the Napoleon Bonapartes. They, they lead the world into war. Now, it is popular. There's two different, very extreme different... Uh, ideas about who the white rider of the white horse is. I've believed both of them at different times. So I'm just, I have. I don't believe either of them now, but I I believe both at different times. But one idea is that it's the Antichrist. Um, And and they use the logic that, you know, the the, the rider is, um, uh, where is it, verse 2, he he wrote out as a conqueror bent on conquest, and and, and he's holding like a, a, a bow, but they say, well, it doesn't mention arrows. So if it doesn't mention arrows, he really had, it's not real. It's like, well, okay, but if you got a bow, you're going to kind of assume there's arrows. You don't have to give every detail. Didn't say he had stirrups on either. <laughs> I mean, you know, I mean, <laughs> so what? Um, 
The other idea is that it's Christ going into all the world with the gospel. A great author who's one of the more famous books on Revelation, a great book, one of the first I read that kind of opened my eyes to reading it, he believes it's Christ going into the world with the gospel. Um, the problem, I, I, I love the idea that it was Christ, because the rider of a white horse, that just seems so perfect, you know, it's great. Uh, but the, over years, the, the, the text has persuaded me that that's just not there. <laughs> it, it's just not there. In fact, since these four horses are clearly a group, both in Zechariah and here, and they match up to the four living creatures, and the, four, the symbolism of four is significant, they're a group, they're of a piece, they're all together, they're all death and destruction. Okay? They probably get closer to the Antichrist idea, except that it's not a specific figure at the end of history. It's the Antichrist. John said there are many Antichrists in the world. Well, it is that, to be sure. But just to, to kind of help you get a picture of what John's audience would have thought of. A coin issued by Domitian, who was the emperor at the time when this book was written. And it had been in its circulation at this point about a dozen years or so. On the front, it has Domitian with his laurel crown. Uh, and then on the back, it shows him on horseback trampling and spearing a fallen German tribesman. I think we've got a picture of that. There we go on the right. So you see the, the picture uh, there. Um, and, and so Roman conquest at the hand of the emperor was a brutal affair. And then we have the red horse. Verse 4, its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and make people kill each other. To him was given a large sword. It's not just emperors that have war in their heart. The people do too. This rider causes people to kill one another. Maybe it's the propaganda that, the propaganda that incites people to fear the other guys. I don't know. But it works in consort with the white horse, no doubt. That Civil war was a common thing in the empire at that time. And then there's the black horse, verses 5 and 6. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. Then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, Two pounds of wheat for a day's wages and six pounds of barley for a day's wages. And do not damage the oil and the wine. It's famine. It's food scarcity. And it's often based on government interference or business interference. It's luxury at the price of poverty. Uh, much like what goes on today. Today you have people inflating housing costs because corporations are buying up houses and lands to make it a big business. Roman exporters, the businessmen of the empire, bought up farmlands and converted them to olive groves and vineyards, olive oil and wine, just like our verse talks about, to export those for large profits because the rich would buy that all over the empire. But that inflated the price of the grains needed to feed the local population and their animals. In other words, they risk the very necessary things for survival in order to keep the wealthy happy and to make a large profit for themselves. It was a very real thing. In fact, it was so real that at one point, Domitian, so during the time of the writing, the same period in which this is written, at one point he actually threatened to burn all the vineyards and olive groves. And force them to replant because the people were starving. Now, he never followed through. But it just gives you an idea of, of how much of an issue this was in the empire at the time. Well, there's a pale horse, verse 8. Its rider was named Death, and Haiti was following close behind him. 
They were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, and plague, and by the wild beasts of the earth. It's interesting that this one is mentioned right before the martyrs. Because the martyrs were put in the arena, along with a lot of the other poor and slaves in the, in the empire, to be killed by the wild beasts. That's exactly what was taking place uh, in the empire. The horse and its rider repeat the sword and famine aspects that we've already seen in the killing, but they had two more means of killing. Plague, which was very, a very real and destructive force, and the wild beasts of the earth. Only because of the COVID pandemic can we even grasp one iota um, of the kind of devastation that they experienced through disease. A book titled Armies of Pestilence, picked up on our vacation earlier this month um, at a thrift store, but I saw it and I said, ah, it looks interesting. But just the title kind of captures the idea of what we see in this verse. I mean, no doubt this verse crossed their minds, and it's just a historical book about the history of pestilence and its destruction in the world. But even in naming it, I wonder if this verse crossed their minds. Empires have been built at the cost of disease. It's widely held that when humans were hunter-gatherers, farmers, or shepherds, they were largely free of communicable diseases, with the exception of malaria which seems to be as old as the human race itself, only when they began to be gathered in large cities, the empires, um, when they, the empires gathered them in cities, did plagues create widespread devastation. Uh, in, in Gibbon's history of the decline and fall of the Roman Empire, he states, pestilence and famine contributed to fill up the measure of the calamities of Rome. One writer said about the Roman historian Livy that he has hardly any room left for history after he's enumerated the pestilences. <laughs> There's just so much pestilence going around. Pestilence was as terrifying and destructive as an army, as any army would be, killing hundreds of thousands, and in some cases, tens of thousands a day. A day. Imagine the bodies piled up. You know, I, I still have pictures of the semi-trucks loaded with corpses in New York City, right? It just is, that's pretty real. And the last time somebody says to me, it says, well, it's just basically like a flu. Well, I don't remember in a flu season we pack it in corpses in semi-truck trailers because the morgues are too full. I just don't remember that. That these horsemen overlap in purpose should be evident. They're all various faces of the same stone, so to speak. Like the facets of a diamond, except it's not pretty. <laughs> they do not represent four distinct categories, but four overlapping categories of death and destruction. And given their connection to Zechariah, their presence means that the rescue of God's people out of captivity is near at hand. As ugly as it is, it means something of that sort. God will once again bring his people out of captivity into a new land, the new Jerusalem. Judgment has ended for the people of God. That is the promise. Judgment has ended for the people of God. And then we have the martyrs in verses 9 through 11. When the fifth seal was opened, John sees under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. These martyrs are slain 
just as Jesus was, and were slain because they remained faithful to God. Jesus is the faithful and true witness, and so were they. Now, since these martyrs were slain like the Lamb, for the same reasons that the Lamb essentially was slain, faithful and true witness, we can discern that the Lamb slain in Revelation is not a picture of atonement, though that is a valid picture elsewhere in Scripture. It's not a picture of atonement, but a picture of Christ conquering evil by absorbing it, if you will. They too have experienced the full wrath of the empire against them, but they have conquered. How? Well, we learn later by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony, and what? Loving not their lives even unto death. They absorbed it too. They did not retaliate. They did not speak evil. They maintained a faithful witness to Jesus. A key difference in the book of Revelation from the Old Testament prophets, both are looking for this second exodus. Both are looking for God to bring together His people and free them from captivity again. But a key difference is that in the Old Testament, God's people suffered under Babylon because of their own sin. Here, they suffer because of the opposition of the inhabitants of the earth, those who follow the beast and receive His mark. Chapter 13, we'll read about that. Rather than following the Lamb. So it's, it's different. They're not being judged. They're actually going to be protected by God ultimately through it. And then the chapter ends with earthquakes in verses 12 through 17. When the sixth seal is opened, there is a great earthquake. When John goes on to desc- or What John goes on to describe is nothing other than the judgment of everything and everyone, rich or poor, slave or free. Everything is turned upside down. God's judgment is the great equalizer. In an earthquake, the solid ground begins to act like the sea. Waves. Chaos. And so at a time like that, it just feels like everything's returning to the chaos before creation. Back to Genesis 1, first couple of verses. It will rather, instead of leading to chaos, lead to a new creation, we discover in the book of Revelation. They, the, these, the, for those that fear the Lamb... It it leads to a new creation. Chapter 6 ends with a question regarding the great day of God's wrath. And that is, who can withstand it? Who can withstand it? Chapter 7 answers the question. Who can withstand it? So let's look at chapter 7. Read with me. First 14 verses. John writes, After this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or on the sea or on any tree. Then I saw another angel coming up from the east, having the seal of the living God. He, put, he called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea. Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. Then I heard. Just underline that little word heard if you make marks in your Bible. Then I heard the number of those who were sealed. 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. From the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. From the tribe of Reuben, 12,000. From the tribe of Gad, 12,000. From the tribe of Asher, 12,000. From the tribe of of Naphtali, 12,000. From the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000. 
from the tribe of Simeon, 12,000. From the tribe of Levi, 12,000. From the tribe of Issachar, 12,000. From the tribe of Zebulon, 12,000. From the tribe of Joseph, 12,000. And from the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000. After this, I looked. Underline the word looked. And there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen! Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen! Then one of the elders asked me, These, in white robes, who are they? And where did they come from? I answered, Sir, you know. And he said, These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So, as these... Things are unsealed. We hear, hear about the horrors. And so what do we get in chapter 7? Well, kind of a bit of a play on words, the verbal form of the word seal. Now, we're going to seal the servants of God so they're protected from all these disasters coming on the earth, effectively. Before any of the damages of chapter 6 can begin, there must be a sealing of the servants of God. Now, what we'll discover is these, these seals don't actually keep them from being killed on the one hand. But it keeps them from losing their life, on the other. They're protected by God. This picture comes right out of Ezekiel 9, where violent judgment is coming on the city of Jerusalem, and the Lord tells the angels to execute violence in chapter 9, verse 4. It says, go through the city of Jerusalem and put a mark on the foreheads of those who grieve and lament over all the detestable things that are done. So they go through and they put a mark, a seal, on the foreheads of everyone who's grieving and lamenting over all the evil that's being done. And so then they go and slaughter everybody, but they don't kill anyone that's got the seal. John's picking up on that picture. The servants of God are, are being marked. They're being sealed. It, I think, graphically, in, in this sort of animated way, pictures what Ephesians chapter 1 talks about in verse 13 and 14 when it says, when you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. We've been marked with a seal. We belong to God. We are his. That's what that means. And he will keep us through it all. Thanks be to God. Amen? Who are these? Who are these, this, this multitude, these people? Well, in order to understand who they are, I mean, they're, they're those who will be delivered from judgment coming on the wicked, to be sure, but first John hears. Now remember, in chapter 1, John hears a voice that was like the sound of rushing waters. Now we know from the Old Testament that voice is Yahweh himself. 
But then John turns to see the voice that was speaking to him, and he sees one like a son of man. What? <laughs> How is it that Yahweh is one like the son of man? It's, it's not expected. And then in chapter 5, we looked at last week, and you're probably familiar with this scene. John is weeping because nobody's able to open the seal, and he hears what? He hears he, the lion of the tribe of Judah has triumphed. He's worthy. Oh, good. I can stop crying now. And then he looks to see this lion. But what does he see? Does he see a lion? Does he see a triumphant lion? Maybe with some blood dripping out its mouth, a little bit of flesh? No. He sees a lamb looking as if it had been slain. So what he hears and what he sees, they're the same thing, but they're entirely different. They refer to the same thing, but they upend our expectations. Same thing is happening here. What did he hear? He heard the number of the servants, 144,000 of all the tribes of Israel. Unless we miss the glaring problem, he, li- he lists the tribes, 12,000 from each. Now, the glaring problem is that aside from Judah, Benjamin, and some of Levi, who had no particular inheritance, so they were spread throughout both the northern and southern kingdoms, the other tribes had been lost in the winds of history following the Assyrian captivity of the northern kingdom. They didn't exist other than being unidentifiably woven into the DNA of the Gentiles. They were the lost tribes. There were only two and a half tribes that existed at that point. So John looks to see, and what does he see? A company of people. Let's see. But it's not what he heard. It says, after these things, I look and behold. So I look and look here. (laughs) It's repeated. It's, it's, I looked and guess what I saw? A, a great multitude that no one could number. So one is perfectly numbered, the other is innumerable. One is from Israel of the 12 tribes. This one is from every nation, from all tribes and all peoples and languages, standing before the throne before the Lamb, clothed in the white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying, without, crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. He heard a perfectly pedigree Israel, and then when he looked to see it, it was anything but pedigree. We shouldn't be surprised since the whole New Testament has worked to teach us that natural pedigree has nothing to do with the true Israel, but faith does. A person is not a Jew, Paul writes to the Romans who is one only outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. So, we certainly wouldn't expect God to change his mind in the book of Revelation. I mean, this is, this is the same truth. No, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is circumcision of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the written code. Such a person's praise is not from other people, but from God. Amen. This is the kingdom of Christ. Amen? The true king of Israel, made up of Jews and Gentiles from every nation, tribe, people, and language. I mean, it is, I'm sorry, I I digress momentarily. Allow me. (laughs) It's just so fascinating to me that the ten northern, the tribes of the, the, the northern kingdom, the ten that made up that group, that... They were lost to the winds of history, but they went by the name of Ephraim because just like the other went by the name of Jews, Judah, 
Their king was David, was from the tribe of Judah. The king of the northern kingdom was from the tribe of Ephraim, so went by the name of Ephraim. Ephraim is one of Joseph's two Gentile sons who had to be adopted by Jacob in order to become a part of Israel. Now, Paul captures this. I've preached on it before, but it's complex. But Paul captures this by using verses about the recovery of, the, of Ephraim, but he applies it to the Gentiles. Why? Because they were Gentiles, and so the promise of bringing the Gentiles in as the majority of Israel actually was foreshadowed in the adoption of, uh, of, of Ephraim and Manasseh. It's all been there from the very beginning. The people of God. Who are these, verse 13 asks. Now at that point, by the time you get to verse 13, in one sense, John's already been told who they are. But this question highlights, I think, the importance of discerning who they are. Part of the problem today is that we read the phrase, the great tribulation. These are they who came out of the great tribulation. And we read it as if the G and the T, maybe even the uh, uh, first T, (laughs) the great tribulation, were capitalized. As if it's the name of a particular time in the future called the Great Tribulation. Right? I mean, that's how I was taught to read it early on. The problem with that is that we have to import that into the text. There are only two places in the entire Bible that have that phrase, the Great Tribulation. And this is the second. So, eh, what are the odds, right? Well, if we look at the first one, it's Matthew 24... And Matthew 24 clearly refers to the time that would happen. Jesus said plainly, all these things will come to pass in this generation. Well, if they came to pass in that generation, what what are we doing here? And if you look at Matthew 24, and I've taught on this before, uh, it was about the destruction of the temple that happened in 70 A.D. Now, if you want to listen to those messages... um, I did, a ser- I did that in a series we were in in Matthew, but uh, if you go to our, our website and look at Sunday sermons under resources, um, you'll find under, just search, when will this happen? And, and listen to part one and part two, and, and it's all there. But if that was, and, and, and in that one, it was clearly not the end of time, because Jesus said, no greater tribulation will happen either before this or after this. Well, if that was at the end of time, of course, after this would not make any sense to say. So it wasn't clearly something at the end of time. Revelation was written, most likely, in the late 90s, uh, long after the destruction of the temple. So we can't import that great tribulation here. So unless we're importing something from outside the text that really has no other foundation, when it says the great tribulation, well, I mean, what, what would that refer to? Well, Jesus said, in the world you will have tribulation. The entire church age certainly could be described as that. I mean, even today, Christians in China, India, Myanmar, Iran, just as for examples, they would consider themselves in great tribulation. In John chapter 1, I'm sorry, in, in Revelation chapter 1 verse 9, John said he was their brother and companion in the tribulation. So he was in the tribulation. Jesus told the believers in Smyrna that he knew their tribulation. And for ten days he said, you will have tribulation, meaning a a long, complete period of time, but not forever, ten days, you know, it's symbolic. Be faithful unto death, he says, and I'll give you the crown of life. The church in Philadelphia also experienced great tribulation. 
the two faithful churches, Smyrna and Philadelphia. So this group, it's not only those who are martyred, but it is all who stayed faithful to Jesus in the face of suffering. In this world, we have tribulation, we have suffering. These sealed servants are the church of the faithful. What are they doing? Well, I'll argue that they're singing by the sea. And you might wonder, how'd you get that from the text? Well, I'll show you. Okay? <laughs> because it's a good question. <laughs> it's not there explicitly, but it is there. Um, <clears throat> I'm going to read verse 10 again, and then we'll jump down to verse 15 where we left off, just because I want to capture what they're doing. And they cried out in a loud voice. And I know that doesn't say sing, but I'll get to why I think it is sing in a moment. Salvation belongs to our God and who, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Oh, thanks be to God. By the way, again, another picture of the Exodus. Because when they entered, went through the sea and came out on the other side, they go through the wilderness, God sheltered them. All right? Pillar of fire by night, but a cloud during the day to protect them from the heat. Uh, so you have, an, again, a, 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 just a snapshot out of the Exodus. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd, and He will lead them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. God has sealed this multitude and ultimately rescues them out of great tribulation. And now they stand before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in the temple. What temple? The heavenly temple that we were looking at last week in chapter 4 and 5, and it continues being described throughout the book? That temple, the real temple, the one in heaven. What's in front of the throne in the temple? I'm sorry, say it out loud, Denise. The sea of glass. So they're standing right in front of the throne. What's right behind them? The sea of glass. Now, I read that, and I'm just thinking, I, I just happen to think this is another Exodus theme. They've come through the Red Sea. They're standing on the other side, and what are they doing? On the other side, they're singing the song of Moses, the song of, 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 of triumph over the enemy, the, the, the song of deliverance, salvation. Deliverance belongs to our God forever and ever. Now, if you question whether I'm allowed to carry the sea that's in front of the throne forward in, from chapter 4 to our scene here, I, I will offer that in chapter 15, verses 2 and 3, which repeats the essence of this scene. It's almost the exact same scene described with a few other details. It says, And I saw what looked like a sea of glass, glowing with fire, and standing beside the sea, those who had been victorious over the beast in its image and over the number of its name. They held harps given to them by God and sang the song of God's servant Moses and of the Lamb. That's what's going on in our scene. The same thing just gets described further as we go through it more and more. Why? Why? Why are we getting these pictures from Exodus? Because what was Exodus? It was God taking a people who were nothing but slaves. They were no people at all. And he made them a people. He made them his kingdom. He brought them to himself. He brought them to the land. And what are we seeing in Revelation? We're seeing God taking his people from all over the world, which are nobodies in the world. His people who have no power in this earth. And he gathers them and he creates them into his people, his kingdom. In the world. 
to himself and delivers them. Oh, the glory. Amen? And what does God shelter them with? His presence. Verse 15. His presence. As soon as Martin Luther King Jr. was chosen to lead the movement formed around the bus boycott in Montgomery, Alabama, and becoming by, by that becoming the de facto leader of the civil rights movement, he began receiving threats from the Klan which in that context meant also harassment from the police. Within days, he was thrown in jail for driving 30 in a 25-mile-an-hour zone. I don't know about you, the last time I got a ticket for going 5 miles an hour with the speed limit, I wasn't thrown in jail, but he was. At home the next evening, because he was released the next day, he sat in his kitchen wondering if he could take it anymore. His phone rang, and he answered, and after calling him a racial slur, he's told... We are tired of your mess now, and if if you aren't out of town in three days, we're going to blow your brains out and blow up your house. He later reflected on that moment in a sermon. He said, Lord, I'm, I'm down here trying to do what's right. I think I'm right. I think the cause that we represent is right. But Lord, I must confess that I'm weak now. I'm faltering. I'm losing my courage. And it seemed at that moment that as he relates, he's reflecting back on that. He says, it seemed at that moment that I could hear an inner voice saying to me, Martin Luther, stand up for righteousness. Stand up for justice. Stand up for truth. And lo, I will be with you even until the end of the world. Three nights later, a bomb exploded on his front porch, filling his house with glass and smoke. He took it calmly and attributed his calmness to that word from the Lord. And it was that word from the Lord that he would be with him and never forsake him. It was that word, Emmanuel, God with us, that carried Martin Luther King Jr. through the rest of his life with courage. And it's that word that a suffering church needs. Amen? Moses needed that word. Lord, if your president doesn't go with us, don't send us. We need that word. We've got a task to do. To be a light of the world in St. Petersburg, in Tampa Bay. And we're going to need God's presence to go with us. Or we can just say, forget it, God. I can't do this ourselves. I get weary. We get weary. Chapter 6 lays out much of the violence and suffering in the world and even among God's people. But as one author puts it, God's first unmediated action in the book of Revelation. His first unmediated action. In other words, he may be allowing a lot of things to happen and superintending them even. But his first unmediated action in Revelation is to wipe away every tear from their eyes. This is God's promise to us in our tribulation today and He is with us, and He will wipe every tear from our eyes. From your eyes, from my eyes. What is God's answer to the evils of this world and the kingdoms that propagate them? A lamb slain and the deliverance of those who follow the lamb. As Dana Harris notes, it is the the surprising vulnerability and weakness of a lamb 
who was slaughtered and resurrected, that vanquishes evil and ushers in the new creation. It is the surprising vulnerability and weakness of a lamb who was slaughtered and resurrected that vanquishes evil and ushers in the new creation. And we could add the vulnerability of the faithful and true witnesses who love not their lives even unto death. God's ways are no different today than they were then. Too often we think God is going to use our powerful positions in the world to make a difference. Too often we think if only we had more money. Too often we think if only the size of, uh, of our political lobby in Washington was bigger. Too often we, we, we think that if we just had the backing of the rich and successful and the famous. Listen, no, we have God with us. Amen. We have God with us. And that's what we need. Let's pray. Lord, I I feel a bit like Moses. Lord, don't send us if you're not going with us. I I understand the fear. I, I understand the fear that at some level, I, I do, that Martin Luther faced, Martin Luther King faced as he was being attacked and threatened. I understand the need for your presence, but I'll have to confess I'm weak. Sometimes I want something more tangible. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. I believe that's true for all of us. Sometimes I think maybe we even trust in the more tangible when we, when we have it. We're doing well because it's there. Lord, help us to trust in you. Help us to understand that your ways are higher than our ways. Even though sometimes they might appear lower than our ways. <laughs> They're actually higher than our ways. We need your grace. Amen and amen.